0: We did chapter 1 um, and now we come to chapter 2. And we come to one of the first warnings in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has 4, 5 or 6 pretty serious warning sections. I'm going to come to the first one now. Let's pray together. Karen and I were at a Memorial service last night. They sang an old Wesley hymn. And it had these words in it. um, Our strength, thy grace. Our rule, thy word. Our end, the glory of the Lord. We're coming together now to be ruled by God's word. Father, we submit our hearts before you to be ruled by your word, for our minds to be changed, for our, for our hearts to be changed. That we don't think the way we thought we thought because we've been reshaped by truth. We thank you that your grace empowers us not only to receive truth but to change in response to the truth. The power of your grace, the power of your spirit constantly is remaking us more and more into the image, the stature, the measure of Jesus. Amen. So Holy Spirit, help us together now, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read it through. It's the beginning of chap- chapter 2 of Hebrews. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, which was, as we saw before, the law given through Moses, but also by angels, proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great the salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His will. We're just looking at those four verses today. We need to hold two things in mind when we come to these warning sections of Scripture. All right? First of all, who is the book written to? It's written to Hebrew Christians, people from a Jewish background who are now believers in Jesus, and it was written in, in probably the AD 60s. And these people were still connected in their lifestyle, in their culture, in their thinking to the old covenant, the law of Moses, and to a still standing temple in Jerusalem. And here's the thing, persecution against followers of Jesus was beginning to kick up in Rome from Nero, the emperor. And for Jewish Christians, they had a terrible choice. Deny Jesus and hang on to Judaism and you would escape persecution. It's a pretty hard choice, isn't it? Face persecution or turn your back on Christianity. Deny the Lord Jesus. Now that's the situation they were facing. Nevertheless, this is also a warning to us. not all the circumstances fit us, but the general principle still applies. They were turned, tempted to turn away from faith in Jesus, under threat of persecution. We don't suffer quite that threat, but we're nevertheless under great pressure today. It is not easy to be a Christian. In fact, in my, I, in my thinking, I don't think it, I've never known it as tough as it is in this kind of decade. Scripture says, For we must, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. What have we heard? Chapter 1. Uh, it's about the gospel. Chapter 1 has told us that Jesus is the eternal Son and Heir of God, the Maker of all things. Jesus is greater than angels, and therefore his message, the gospel, is greater than the message delivered by angels, the law. Hebrews goes on to set out again and again that this new covenant, this new agreement, New Testament is the way it's labeled in your Bible, is altogether better than the old covenant. Jesus is better. The law, the word spoken through angels, was unchangeable, and to reject or transgress that law brought you two things condemnation, guilt, and death. How much more should we believe and obey the gospel, which offers us? I'll try not to go quite so fast, I'm losing my speech, which offers us so great salvation in Jesus. It offers us life. To reject the law was to choose death. If you were to reject the gospel, which is altogether greater and better than the law, because Jesus is altogether greater than anything that came before him, what outcome might we expect? What are we choosing then if we reject the gospel? If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This gospel was first proclaimed, preached, through Jesus himself. You could read the gospels. The kingdom of God is at hand, says Jesus. He's proclaiming the gospel. Then it was confirmed by those who heard him, the apostles, and as they went out to proclaim it, God attested to the truth of the gospel with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit as he determined. I want you to notice the Trinity there. The gospel was firstly preached through the Lord Jesus, though it was prophesied beforehand. God the Father witnessed to him and to the truth, in particular, By raising Jesus from the dead. That was on that one. The Holy Spirit continues to witness by works and gifts today, not just then, but today, that he inspires and empowers which point to and honor the Lord Jesus. This way, David. Andrew Murray, one of the writers on Hebrews, says, The Lord preached, the Father bore witness, and the Holy Spirit came as the power of God to work to show that this is true, the gospel is true. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit declare the good news to us, what we have heard. It is a message of such a great salvation. We'll come to that in a minute. This gospel of the Son of God is the only news that can bring us from death and sin and deliver us from condemnation, can bring us forgiveness of sins and adoption as children of God. There's no other message that will do that. There's religions that will offer you a a way of thinking and even a way of living or behaving. But no other message is a life and death issue like the gospel is. It is simply the most important thing in this world. It's the biggest news. The life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the most important event ever. In fact, newspapers have a size of typeface that they've got reserved for the second coming. Yeah? I don't know what size it is, but the whole front page has like three words, you know, Jesus came, you know, or two words. They call it second coming typeface, and it's reserved for the biggest news. Outside Sainsbury's, there is usually a chap there selling the big issue. And we have a polite smile to one another, you know. No, I you know, I know that's imp- there's all kinds of important stuff in the world. There's all kinds of causes. But this is the biggest issue. The gospel of Jesus. Nothing else is as important as Jesus and the new covenant which he has made for us in his own blood. There is salvation nowhere else. There is no other name by which you can and must You might have noticed last week I spelled out a few points about salvation. They all began with R. What do you expect from me? I'm a preacher. (laughs) Let me give you those headlines again. Salvation, Bible word, means rescue from sin and death and judgment. You're rescued. It means redemption from the power of sin. You're brought out from that. Delivered from being under that to a new way of life. Being being. Empowered by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. It's being restored to the love of God. And oh, how important it is to know the love of God. And we are brought into relationship with God through Jesus' Son. So we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. That's, it's a big thing, isn't it? All of those benefits, all of those things are at work in this great salvation. So we need to pay urgent, focused, close attention to this gospel of Jesus, and in fact to Jesus himself. That's why for me, you know, I enjoy Sunday mornings and I enjoy worship, but this is not amusement and entertainment. Every week, as we handle the Gospel, as we remember the Lord Jesus together, we are handling, quite seriously, life and death. Life in Jesus or death without Him. And here's the phrase that catches my attention. So that we do not drift away. We need Jesus. And not drift away. It's not the gospel that drifts away from us. We drift away from the gospel. Might like seem like a good idea floating in a boat like that, but if you don't know where you're going, you're in trouble. That drifting away is actually a Greek word that it is about a boat, which is adrift. Taking on water. It should be sailing purposefully ahead, but the sails are down, the oars are stowed, and it's running with the tides instead. It's only a matter of time until such a boat is either lost at sea or breaks up on the rocks. There's a very graphic account of that, by the way, in Acts 27, when Paul was a shipwreck. And people drift away from the gospel before they drift away from church. People drift away before they stay away. Their hearts drift before their feet drift. You see, what happens is this their heart is already somewhere else. Their attention is somewhere else with somebody, with something, with pleasures of the world, whatever it is. It's only a matter of time, you know, until your heart follows your, your feet, follow your heart. If your heart has been filled with something other than Christ, it's only a matter of time until your feet follow your heart. It's a drift of attention, the mind. Something else fills their thoughts and their time. It's a drift of affection, their hearts. Something else is filling their hearts. We need to pay close attention so that we do not drift. What is it to drift? It's to prefer the company, the consumerism, even the corruptions this world. Sometimes people are led astray by false teaching. They prefer hearing something other than gospel truth, centered on Jesus himself. Such a drifting can lead to what Paul termed shipwreck. This command, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in, co- in accordance with the prophecies previously concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. We're saved by grace, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to do There's a fight to be fought. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. It's a plain fact of navigation that if you are not setting your course, you will probably end up where you didn't want to be. How many of you drive your car like that? (laughs) Well, I want to go to Norwich today, but I have no, which, no idea which way it is, so why don't I just drive the M25 until I see a sign to Norwich? <laughs> if you don't set your course, you'll end up where you didn't want to be. And if we don't fix our attention and affection on the right thing, we will drift. Is it possible that some have made a profession of faith drift and in time make shipwreck? Yes, it is possible. One writer says, silently abandoning or openly renouncing their profession. Not everyone who makes a claim to conversion of faith lasts, you know. And this is where I'm afraid that the evangelical church and charismatic church as well, and Pentecostal church, have, have gotten into a mistake here along the way. I speak as a charismatic of Pentecostal. For far too long, far too many people have understood that getting saved means the response you make to the gospel at some point in time. It's raising a hand, walking to the front of a meeting, receiving prayer, maybe even being baptized. And, and on the basis of they have responded in some way, they are slapped on the back and, you know, puffed up and, and assured. You're it's all right, you're saved now. But then they fall away. They walk away from following and obeying Jesus. They walk away from church. But because that's what they've been told, they claim that they're still saved because they made the response to the gospel. Now I think that is a very dangerous way of thinking. In explaining the parable of the seed and the soils, Jesus said this. Hear then the parable of the sower. The seed is the gospel, the word of the kingdom. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And we all think, oh, this is wonderful, this person's got... Yet he has no firm root in himself. But he's only temporary. When affliction or persecution, like, you know, you're going to deny Jesus then and just go back to Judaism? When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who, hears the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, uh, who indeed bears fruit. And it brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So There's even degrees of fruitfulness, but there's fruitfulness. There is such a thing as temporary faith that doesn't survive the tests of obedience and then of opposition. Someone may challenge me, if you're not, no one's thinking, well actually some of my, so I suppose some of my, the guys I bounce things around in theology with most are out there. now. But anyway. I thought you were reformed in your theology, I thought you believed in the eternal security of the saints. Well yes I am and yes I do. But sound theology handles all of the Bible. It doesn't just pick out proof text to, 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 to line up with what you want to say. The doctrine of the security of the saints is poorly stated in terms of once saved, always saved. Here is a much better definition, faithful, I believe, to the scriptures, and actually to what theology really says. God preserves his children. They persevere in faith. And they do so because his grace is at work in them. But God's preserving of his people is, is, is connected with totally you know, equal sign across the equation because they, he has a work in them that they continue on in faith in Jesus. The evidence of saving faith is the obedience of faith and the continuing in faith. You keep on trusting and serving the Lord Jesus. You keep on calling out him just as David did in the psalm we read earlier. From the ends of the earth I cry to you when my heart is faint within me. Lead me back to the rock that is higher than I. That's faith calling out when it's getting weak, when it's being troubled. To be renewed, to be strengthened again. And God will keep doing it so long as you keep asking Him. You keep on because He keeps on being your Savior. Later on in Hebrews, while the warnings continue, the writer actually says this. This is really encouraging, but it's about five chapters ahead of us, four chapters ahead of us now. Hebrews 6. But, my loved ones, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way. Even though I'm giving you these warnings, says the apostolic writer. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. I just want to make sure you stay on track. If you are a child of God, you will take notice of the warnings of Scripture. And you'll turn to the Lord to save you in your trials and rescue you when you begin to drift. Like Peter falling beneath the waves, you'll cry out many times in your life, Save me, Lord! Let's go back to the statements. Oh, by the way, let me give this illustration to you. I'll probably have to use this quite a few times in coming weeks and months. The warnings of Scripture are like a sign on the edge of a cliff. You know, danger, cliff edge, do not come close. Guess what a lot of people do. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Far too many Christians are concerned with how close they can stay to the cliff edge. Right. Rather than getting the, the what's it away from there. You understand? Yeah. The warnings say, don't, don't do this. Ah, Please. But some of us, because we all still have wicked hearts, you know, think, how close can I get? Where does it get really dangerous? How many of you know that's stupid? Really stupid? It's the phrase I want to work on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, i preached more than half my time. How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What the Lord Jesus has won for us is a very great salvation. Biggest news on the planet. It's a huge deliverance, a massive rescue and restoration. It was pictured beforehand by the Exodus, the deliverance of God for the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to being his nation, gathered around his presence, led and fed by him. It was a huge event, but that was only a shadow play, like a puppet show compared to the reality of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Here's the main point of what I want to say today. This phrase, so great salvation. Why is it great? Because it's great because of our need. The Bible says our condition outside of Christ, was utterly desperate. In our sin, we were blind, deaf, stupid, even dead towards God. I'm not going to give you all the scriptures to show all of those things. We couldn't obey him. We were captives, slaves to sin. And in unbelief, we were already under condemnation and the wrath of God. And if you are... Saved. You are saved by His grace. God did it for you, not you. Jonah, in the belly of a great fish, even though he didn't know he was going to be delivered, cried out, salvation is of the Lord. It's still true. Salvation is not our work, it's God's. That's the start of how and why this is so great, salvation. We didn't do it, we couldn't do it. We've been and are being saved by His grace through faith. It's big because you would never get it. You'd never see it. You'd never believe it if God didn't intervene by His grace. So it's big, isn't it? So great salvation. It's also so great salvation because of the cost. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and He did all of those things, and He lives and reigns now. And He did and does all of those things now for us. I'm longing to get into the further part, the the third part of Hebrews 2. Jesus himself made lower than the angels, going on into the suffering of death. Why? For us! For us! What a cost. There are are songs uh, that uh, often... When we sing the move me, one of them is the one that has the bridge in it. And I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Another one is, uh, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Week by week in breaking bread and sipping the cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. There's a reason we have a big cross there. It's an image, it's a picture, it tells a story. We mustn't forget that we are bought at great cost. Twice in 1 Corinthians, Paul argues this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. Ego? Ego better go. You're not your own. Peter puts it this way. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, bought, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile, stupid in other words, way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And because Jesus gave himself entirely for us, the only sensible response is that we give ourselves entirely to him, to follow and obey him. No reservations, no compromises. He has a right to claim our wholehearted attention, affection, and obedience. Phrase, scripture many of us know. Romans 12, 1-2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your logical or reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And third thing, I could, I could do five or six or seven of these, but three we'll have to do. It is so great a salvation because of the effect, because it, we really are saved, transferred, transformed, not finished yet, still full of flaws and imperfections, but my goodness, we are not what we were. We may still be in this world, but we are no longer of this world. We're no longer under the dominion of Satan, but in the kingdom of his Son. We're no longer children of wrath. We're children of God, loved and adopted. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything's become new. The grace of God does something, and it does more than brings us forgiveness of sins, it brings us transformation of heart and mind and life. You don't become a Christian and go on being the same as you were before. Because the grace of God and the gospel of God is a transforming thing. Born of God, born to be a new creature with a new way of life. Feeding on new food, which is the truth of God and the grace of God and the spirit of God. If you continually measure and evaluate this so great salvation, you keep sizing it up, you keep bigging it up to, I'm not young (laughs) though. People like David Sodom use expressions like wavy and I go, wavy? (laughs) The youth always have a jargon, don't they? Because they're trying not to be like us old ones. (laughs) If you big it up, <laughs> you might not drift from it so much. All right? We need to pay attention and, and evaluate. This is, this is a big deal. What God has done in saving me, this is huge. This is massive. You don't drift away from something that you recognize again and again, over and over. This is huge. This is massive. I want you to notice the way the writer uses words here. He does not say, so that we do not run away. He just uses the word drift. He doesn't use the expression, so that we reject so great salvation. He just uses the word neglect. You don't have to stamp your feet and say, no, I'm not having this. You just have to say, not interested. And walk away. To treat the gospel as merely an available option. I'll I'll think about it sometime. To defer your response to the gospel. To choose instead to continue a life of God dishonoring lifestyle. Is to neglect so great salvation. It is actually, you know, to really reject is a dreadful thing. It's a dreadful thing to reject the gospel and to deny Jesus. But also, this is written to Christians. We mustn't duck away from it. To neglect to continue hearing, believing, and walking in the truth is to neglect so great a salvation. Oh, I haven't turned my back on Christianity, you may say, but have you turned your ear away from hearing and your heart away from believing and your feet away from walking in the truth? Scripture here strongly warns us not to neglect hearing, believing, and living in obedience to the truth. So I want to ask some very direct questions right now. Are you living in the light or trying to stay in the shadows? Or to use the illustration, I popped in extra just now. You, You keep him well away from that cliff edge or are you still sticking your nose over it? I'm just looking. Are you committed to follow the Lord Jesus, which if you were baptized, you actually said that you were? Or are you again and again making compromises? Are you moving ahead in faith or drifting away? My friend, I have to say this to you. You make no progress by drifting. You will make no progress drifting. And no one drifts into discipleship and obedience and godliness. You can only drift away. You have to walk towards. You can drift away by simply doing Very little. Making no effort. If I may change the picture from sailing to swimming. Every hour lived as a Christian means swimming against the tide and against what is popular. Every hour that we live. Do we really think being a Christian is no brain, easy going, zero effort, swing with the wind, go with the flow? It isn't. It's with very good reason the Bible urges us to walk the walk of faith, to run the race, to fight the fight of faith. There is no easy option. The relaxed route, the easy way, the popular road, leads to destruction. Jesus said it. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad, that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow, that leads to life. And there are few that find it. The hardest way to live on planet earth is to be a disciple of Jesus. To deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. In fact, you can't do it, which is why everything you do will be accomplished by the strength that God supplies. His, your strength is his grace, your rule is his word, your end is the glory of God. Amen. You're living by more than you've got within you. You're living by divine help, his grace, his power, his resources, his wisdom. I know I'm taught. still teaching a rather stretched that series on Dare to Be a Disciple. I think I've said almost every time. a A disciple chooses discipline. That's what makes him a disciple. Take away the discipline, you're no longer a disciple. You're adopting hard things, not easy things. Wasn't it JFK who was promising to put a man on the moon? We're going to choose to do the difficult thing. Every day of our lives, Christians make difficult choices. We choose to do the difficult thing. But we'll do it with God's strength. We'll do it by God's power. Here's something from John Brown, 1800s. He's quoting scripture here, but I've put the references for, you, for the notes. Christians are kept by the mighty power of God, but it is through faith. They are saved by the gospel which preached to them, but they must keep it in memory. They shall never fall, but it's as they do these things. They shall be made partakers of Christ, but they must hold fast the beginning of their confidence, steadfast unto the end. Hebrews gives us a series of serious warnings, not to drift away, not to deny Jesus, not to forsake him, for something that's only temporary and worthless. Towards the end of Hebrews we're told that this is not even just a personal effort, we're to see to it, Caring for one another, that no one falls short of the grace of God. We're continuing to gather together, to encourage and provoke one another to love and to good works. We, we, we're like, you know, the old thing: "Go on, come on, keep going." Stirring one another forward, we need to keep pressing on to know and to serve the Lord Jesus, and we need the help of one another to keep us on track doing so too. We sing a song when I haven't sung it today. The end part is this. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning, no turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Why? Because I'm, so, I'm going to make this happen. No. It's all about this. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. We sang earlier on, Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus be the center of my life. I tell you, when we sing those songs, we need to put ours entirely in them. Yeah. We have our moments of being drawn away. We have our fierce moments of triumph. In those times, we need to use psalms that tell our experience. Gutsy Psalms. I read Psalm 61, wasn't it, earlier. If you want a few more, I, I let, point you to the 60s and 70s of the Psalms. Try 69 and, and Psalm 70. Psalm 69 and Psalm 70. You're jealous because other people are getting on better than you and they have money and you don't, and there's a Psalm for it. You're being attacked, yeah, you're being attacked by people at work who are not Christians They're giving you heart. There's a Psalm for, for it. And you cry out in your situation to your Saviour. And guess what? He saves you. Amen. Again and again and again. It is that big a salvation. It comes down to not even year by year, but <laughs> like hour by hour and minute by minute. All you do is you keep crying out to Him in faith and depending upon Him. Christ is enough. Enough. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, you really are better. Better than anything the world has to offer, better than any alternative religion, philosophy. You are altogether better. Your gospel is the greatest news on earth. And Opens to us the greatest power on earth to be children of God, ruled by his word, empowered by his spirit and his grace to live for his glory. Lord, if any one of us is drifting right now, I pray that they might pray the the prayer of Peter. It wasn't long. It was Jesus, save me. Save me from this. You saved me before, but will you right now save me from this? Because I'm, I'm losing my way here, Lord. I pray that none one of us may think of ourselves as being strong. We don't need the warnings. We all need the warnings. So that we stay on track. We stay focused in our attention and in our affection. And we keep singing our songs until we believe them with all our hearts that Jesus is the center and Christ is enough for me. Amen. 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 Colin, you come up.